You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. On almost every continent and in the farthest reaches of the earth, there exist stories of mighty beasts living well beyond their time. Creatures that in every instance are very, very out of place, leaving those who hear the tales to wonder if it's all indeed just expressions of imagination from an ancient past. Nevertheless, such animals are spotted all over earth, from the jungles of the Congo to the remote mountaintops of New Guinea. Living dinosaurs are believed by many to be very real and very much alive, even in the great white north that we at Into the Portal call home. Canada is of course known for its rich fossil record from the badlands of Alberta and beyond. But to encounter a living dinosaur in the frozen valleys of the Yukon is another thing altogether. But this is just what occurred in 1903 on a hunting expedition when multiple witnesses from various walks of life would encounter a beast so terrifying that the men rushed back to Dawson City demanding guns and men to track and kill what they had seen. They quickly became a laughing stock, but they knew what they saw that day, feeling lucky to have made it back to Dawson alive. Although there have been many fossils, footprints, and other remnants of such creatures discovered in the Yukon, few sightings have occurred since 1903. And so, the mystery endures to this day. Join us on Into the Portal for one of the most bizarre cryptozoological sightings we have covered to date, the monster of Partridge Creek. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with a monster episode this week. Yes, finally. Long time coming. It has been a long time coming, and we haven't done like a cryptozoological case for a little while. So I'm pretty excited about this. Mm -hmm. Although... In terms of cryptozoology, this dabbles in more of the realm of the paranormal than just uh, hidden hidden animals, but certainly we are dealing with a monster today. Indeed. But uh, before we dive right into it, we have a tiny, tiny bit of housekeeping. Yes, we would like to thank two new patrons yeah. for joining us. Yeah, we got Canadian Girl. What's up? Shout out to Canadian Girl Podcast, yeah. Ace. Awesome. 
Mm-hmm. And then as well, we have a brand new producer. Yes, we do. Thank yeah. you to Jordan You, Yeah, man. Thank you so much. You really appreciate the support and we're just so thrilled to have you both in our community. Unbelievably excited. The Patreon community keeps growing and uh, we've got brand new content up on there for you guys to check out. And we actually just added a brand new tier as well. Mm-hmm. The Cryptid Seeker tier for those of you interested in uh, cryptozoology like we are. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a new $3 tier. So you guys can go hop on our Patreon and check it out. There's like over 42 Patreon exclusive posts on there if you if you sign up to support the show now. So good bang for your buck. Yep. <laughs> and that's about it for housekeeping though, I think. Other than uh, we do have a shop in the works for our Straight Up Strange Productions website. And that's going to be really cool. So there's going to be exclusive Straight Up Strange products and also show merch from across the network. And maybe some other cool found items and obscure treasures and curiosities as well. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be different than any other online store linked to podcasts that you guys have ever seen. So we're really excited. Stay tuned for that. Really stoked on it. Working hard. (laughs) Okay. So today we are discussing none other than the legendary monster of Partridge Creek. Mm -hmm. Absolutely bizarre case. And a little bit older, kind of, you know, heading back into some Canadian history here for us. Yep. But what we wanted to do to kick this off was do a bit of a reading. Mm-hmm. So most of, most of, if not all of the information for this account comes from a couple of people and uh, a letter from uh, Father Lavenue mm-hmm. and a couple other important players here. So do you want to just kick that off with that? We'll do a reading and then we can move into the... Exactly. So this reading actually dates to 1908, and it was written by a man named George Dubois, and he basically, he published a journal called Gisseto, which I'm totally mispronouncing, but it means I know all in French. Mm -hmm. So basically he's recounting um, several encounters, there's about three in total, that uh, was told to him by one of his friends, some of the right. creature's eyewitnesses, and he similarly witnessed this beast That's himself. Right. So. The story which follows is in no sense a romance. I wish in the first place to ask the readers of the following narrative to believe that I am in no way attempting to impose upon their credulity. Concerning the amazing spectacle I am about to describe, I report nothing but plain facts, however astounding and apparently incredible they may seem at first glance, precisely as they appeared to my own eyes. And I am possessed with excellent sight, and to those of my three companions, all three white men, without counting five Indians of the Kalakuk tribe, who have their camps on the shores of the River Stewart, The following are the names of the three ocular witnesses who are ready to testify to the truth of my assertions. The first is my hunting companion. For many years, Mr. James Lewis Butler, banker of San Francisco. The second is Mr. Tom Lemore, a miner from McQueen River in the Yukon Territory. And lastly, Reverend Father Pierre Lavenue, a Canadian Frenchman and missionary at the Indian village of Armstrong Creek, not far from Equestin. In the course of ten years rambling in the four quarters of the world, it has been my lot to witness a great number of amazing spectacles, and the strange experience of which I speak 
had become no more than a vivid recollection when, a few days ago, on January 24th, 1908, the following letter reached me at Paris. It came from Father L'Avenue, who passes his life with his savage flock 600 miles northwest of the Klondike. I give it here word for word. Armstrong Creek, January 1st, 1908. My dear son, the trader of McQueston has just stopped here with his train of dogs and sleds. He has had a hard journey from Dawson by Barlow, Flat Creek, and Dominion. I expect to receive him in another fortnight with fresh provisions and news of the outside world. Today is the first day of the new year, and I want this letter to express my affectionate wishes for your health and happiness. I hope it will give you the pleasure of receiving you under my humble roof here at the other end of the earth. I will not believe that you will let your old friend in the Great White North leave his old carcass to the Indians, who will some day or other make his coffin out of branches without seeing him once more. I have received your book, and reading it has given me the greatest pleasure. By the way, you are wrong in regard to that poor fellow John Spitz. Alas, he is no longer a mail carrier of the Dungeon District. He died, poor fellow, at Eagle Camp, soon after you departed, not having survived the wound he received from the bald face, which you will remember. Talking of ferocious animals, you will believe me when I tell you that ten of my Indians and myself saw again on Christmas Eve that horrible beast of Partridge Creek, passing like a whirlwind over the frozen surface of the river, breaking off with his hind feet enormous blocks of ice from the rough surface. His fur was covered with hoarfrost, and his little eyes gleamed like fire in twilight. The beast held in his jaws something which seemed to me like a caribou. It was moving at the rate of more than 10 miles an hour. The temperature that day was 45 degrees below zero. At the corner of the cutoff, it disappeared. It was undoubtedly the same animal that we saw before, accompanied by Chief Stanishan and two of his sons. I followed their traces, which were exactly like those which we all saw. Limor, Butler, you and I, in the mud of the moose lick six times on the snow, we were able to measure the impression of an enormous body, the same size as we found it before, almost to the twentieth of an inch. We followed them to Stuart, fully two miles when the snow began to fall slightly and blotted out the traces. This was the end of the letter. It was upon receipt of this message that I decided to write a story of my own experiences which it received so vividly to mind and of which it afforded a striking confirmation. This is the story of my friend Butler. The station of McQueston, that far-off corner of the strange country of the Yukon, where the eight months of winter are so terrible, but the short summer so marvelously beautiful, was on four occasions my chosen retreat during the eight years that I have known the North. A friend of mine in San Francisco, Mr. Butler, has come to Dawson City in order to purchase gold mining concessions and has promised to join me in order that we should go hunting together. I was taking my coffee one afternoon on the veranda of Father's Lavenue cabin when all at once I heard someone whistle from the farther bank of the river. A canoe paddled by two Indians was coming up the river in the shadow of the trees. Butler was with them. My dear fellow, he said, smiling as I met him and endeavoring to hide his visible agitation, I have something very strange to tell you. 
Do you know that prehistoric monsters still exist? I broke out laughing, and the two of us ventured by the little path which led to the father's house. When Butler had taken off his muddy boots and was resting in a comfortable seat, he began to recount his story as follows. Leaving Gravel Lake, where I arrived on Tuesday evening, my last stage was at the mouth of the Clear Creek, where I knew that you would send someone to meet me. Traveling was frightfully bad, 40 miles of marshy country. And last, at nightfall, I descended the hill and had the pleasure of seeing Grant's cabin, which was lighted up. This is where I would spend the night. And early the next morning, he came to tell me, in his reserved and silent manner, that three fine moose were feeding quietly behind the plateau of Partridge Creek. After swallowing a hasty mouthful, all four of us, Grant, your two men, and I, started out on the hunt. We made a wide detour, and at the top of the hill where we had hidden ourselves, all of us were stretched full length on the ground. We perceived a short distance off in the valley, near a moose lick, three enormous moose moving slowly forward and quietly browsing on moss and lichens. All at once they gave three simultaneous bounds, and one of the males giving vent to a striking bellow, which these animals utter only when they are hunted or mortally wounded. The three went off at a mad gallop towards the south. What had happened? We decided to approach the spot where the animals had taken fright so suddenly. Arriving at the moose lick, a spot about 60 feet long and 15 wide, we saw in the mud, and almost at the level of the waters with the lick, the fresh imprint of the body of a monstrous animal. Its belly had made an impression in the slime more than two feet deep, 30 feet long and 12 feet wide. Four gigantic paws, also deeply impressed, had left at each end of the main imprint and, a little to the side, footprints five feet long by two and a half feet wide. The claws being more than a foot long, the sharp points of which had buried themselves deeply in the mud. There was also the print, apparently, of a heavy tail, 10 feet long and 16 inches wide at the point. We followed the tracks of the monster in the valley for five or six miles, and then at the ravine of Partridge Creek, a place which the local miners call a gulch. They ceased suddenly, as if by enchantment. The next day at five o'clock in the morning, Father Lavenu, Butler, Lemore, a neighboring miner, hastily summoned myself and five men of the tribe to cross the River Stewart in two canoes. All day long we searched, without result. The valley of the Little River, McQueston, and the flats of Partridge Creek, and the county between Barlow and the lofty snow-covered mountains. At last, towards the evening, tired out, after having toiled for a long time through the Great Marsh, we lit a fire at the top of the ravine. The sun was setting, Lying by the fire, we let our eyes wander over the glittering expanse of marsh, which we had just traversed. The tea was boiling, and everyone was preparing to dip his tin cup in the pot, when suddenly a noise of rolling stones and a strange, harsh, and frightful roar made us all spring to our feet. The beast for which we had been looking, a black, gigantic form, the corners of his mouth filled with blood-stained slime, his jaws munching something, I know not what, was slowly and heavily climbing the opposite side of the ravine, making the large boulders roll into the valley as he went. Struck with terror, Father Lavenu, Limor, and myself tried to utter a cry of fright, 
but no sound issued from our parched throats. Unconsciously, we had seized each other's arms. The five Indians were crouching down with their faces against the ground, trembling like leaves shaken by the wind. Butler was already rushing down the hill. The Dinosaurus, it is the Dinosaurus of the Arctic Circle, muttered Father Lavenu, his teeth chattering with fear. The monster had stopped scarcely twenty paces from us, resting upon his huge belly, was staring, motionless, at the red sun which was bathing all the landscape in a weird light. For a full ten minutes, riveted to the spot by some strange force which we could not overcome, did we contemplate this terrible apparition. We were, however, in full possession of our senses. There was not, and never will be, in our minds the least doubt as to the reality of what we saw. It was indeed a living creature, and not an illusion which we had before us. The creature then turned his immense neck, but did not seem to see us. His withers were at least 18 feet above the ground, his entire body from the extremity of his yawning jaws which were surmounted by a horn like that of a rhinoceros, to the end of his tail must have measured at least 50 feet. His hide was like that of a wild boar, garnished with thick bristles in color of grayish black. His belly was plastered with thick mud. At this moment, Butler returned to us. He told us that he thought the animal weighed about 30 tons. And suddenly, the beast moved his jaws, visibly chewing some thick, viscid kind of food. And we heard a sound like that of the crunching of large bones. Then, with a sudden movement, he raised himself on his hind legs, and giving utterance to a roar, a hollow, indescribable, frightful sound, and wheeling round with a surprising agility, movements resembling that of a kangaroo. It bounded back into the ravine, and out of sight. On the 24th, Butler and myself, having taken two days rest, started for Dawson City, for the purpose of demanding from the governor 50 armed men and mules. Here, my story ends. For a month, we were the laughing stock of the Golden City, and the Dawson Daily Nugget published an article about me, which was at the same time flattering and satirical, entitled, Arrival of Poe. Okay, so that is truly fascinating. Yeah. Reads exactly like an Edgar Allan Poe or any sort of um, Victorian or Gothic era sort of Doesn't like it? Yeah. fiction, monster fiction. I really like it though. And so, okay, let's just break this down. Let's go in chronological order here. Yeah, let's do it. Because George himself, he kind of jumps around a little bit, but the first encounter was in 1903. Yes. So this was when the Beast's tracks were first spotted by a banker from San Francisco by the name of James Lewis Butler, uh, along with a local gold prospector named Tom Leemore. Right. Mm-hmm. So essentially, this is where the story picks up with a couple of dudes hunting moose. Right. <laughs> and, you know, just typical activities that a lot of people were engaged in up in the north. But these guys came away with an entirely different mind-altering and world-altering experience, I would imagine. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to wonder if they were ready to jump jump the gun and go hunting in that same area ever again. Oh, I wonder. Yeah, if you'd be that daring, they probably just hightailed it out of there, <laughs> I yeah. would imagine. So as they were sort of hunting down this trio of moose, as the story goes, the animals 
were suddenly startled and scared badly enough to flee at a high rate of speed away from something that the men hadn't yet perceived. So they weren't really as in tune as the natural surroundings. But then they found the tracks. So what did you make of this? They basically say how when they reached the spot where the moose fled, they... The, the reason became quite clear and that in the snow and the mud and all this sort of like, like really wet terrain is what I'm imagining in my head is this clear impression of an enormous creature, enormous tracks. Like they describe what, like five feet by three feet. Yeah. It was something like that. Like just absolutely enormous. And obviously reminds me of uh, back in the Michele Mbembe episode. And when they were finding those impressions, which was also a missionary in that story as well. Like father Lavenu is involved in this one. And there was a missionary in, in central Africa for that story as well. I believe in and around the same time, turn of the century Mm -hmm. kind of era. Right. He doesn't even make it into the story at this point though. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that? Like, let's, let's discuss that for a second, though. Like, do you think that adds legitimacy, having someone of the cloth involved? I Honestly, <laughs> at this, I actually kind of do, I think, because of the era, right? Like, it's, it's turn of the century. Like, when we're looking at stories like, you know, living pterosaurs and, and Michele Mbembe still alive today, 2019, there's obviously religious reasoning to try to prove that to be true right? Mm -hmm. Like young earth creationists and that type of thing, right? The earth is only, what, 16 years old or something, right? But but, uh, um, but back in 1908, I feel like it would have been more, a little bit more on the naturalist side of things, like Mm -hmm. just trying to understand the world rather than to reaffirm your worldview because the worldview was pretty much ubiquitous. Like most people were either brought up Christian or whatever religion they were brought up, right? Like people had faith at this time. Right. But that didn't preclude the possibility of these sort of scientific enigmas and discoveries, right? Because this is the heyday of discovering this ancient past of the dinosaur era. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's get into some more specifics here. They describe the beast's belly or the tail making this massive furrow that was about 30 feet long, 12 feet wide, and two feet deep into the mud and snow. Pretty deep. Flanked by gigantic footprints, like I mentioned, right? About 2.5 feet across, five feet in length, and yielding impressions of sharp one foot long claws. Is what yeah, <laughs> you don't want to run into that. No. I mean, definitely finding these prints... I mean, oh, it's like, I wish if only these guys could have had a, a camera with them for the prints, right? I mean, mm. but typically you're out on a hunting trip. You're not bringing with, you're not at this time period, you're not bringing a, we're watching Deadwood right now. And uh, they got the the paper editor guy gets a camera shipped in and it's like this massive box. And yeah. it's like, if you were going to try to have that fundamental proof at this era, it would have been real tough. It would have been better maybe to have like casting material, some sort of way to make an impression. Definitely. But who knows? They obviously. No one's planning for that. No, no one, no one thought this was a thing. They were just going out to hunt some moose. So. Right. Yeah. Very, uh, I would say their intent was very innocent. It's not as if they were out searching for even bones, right? They weren't even looking for dinosaurs or anything like that. No, not at all. No. So it gets even weirder, right? Because once they decide to follow these tracks, they they lead them down several miles to, like we said in the story, but like George Dupuy notes in the story, it was a gulch known as Partridge Creek. And this is where the track simply came to an end. 
and this gave cause to speculate that it might have leapt directly up into the gulches and passing cliffs. Crazy. So I, I don't know. What do you make of that? Did it really disappear over this edge or were these guys, like this is my favorite theory, were they experiencing some kind of tangible time slip or perhaps okay. slipped into another dimension themselves temporarily? And I'm going to get into this in the theory section here. The gulch has like a doorway or a veil through which these two worlds meet. But this is me getting a little ahead of myself, so. Well, sure. Okay. Well, I wouldn't say that. I'm really, really super into that. Uh, because, I mean, our, our good friend Chris Birkenbein will just be tossing and turning <laughs> at us talking about this, right? But no, um, I I feel like you're onto something there. Because obviously, we're in an area where... There's, I like this description. Like they say, like going through the encompassing cliffs and stuff, right? Mm. Uh, that leads me to believe that there's a lot of crevices, nooks and crannies, caves, places oh, where things yeah. can hide. And not only that, it's like, where do these entrances go to? So I'm kind mm. of going to play off of that idea a little bit because, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea of a time slip has occurred a lot. And I'm looking forward to you bringing that up at the end. All sorts of different stuff, whether it be UFO phenomena, cases like this with Michele and Bembe Goblins. in the Congo. Gob, exactly. Things yeah. like that, right? But if not a time slip per se, I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> then like how else could this possibly be explained from like a paranormal perspective, right? If we are to believe that this is like a flesh and blood, unidentified animal of some kind, what if this creature, very much along the lines of what you're saying, came through something? It's real. It's tangible. It's, it can be killed. It's flesh and blood. It's eating moose. But it's not from there, right? Mm. So we've talked about this with goblins, so like caves and weird stuff that goes on around caves all over the world. And where do these caverns go? And it's not necessarily like journeying to the center of the earth. You go 50 miles in and there's another prehistoric world. But they're known to be portals in all sorts of throughout ancient history, all the way up until now. And the Kentucky goblins, if you want to go there, right? Yeah, no, totally. And, and the gulch comes into play again, right? Because the next day... They had another encounter, and it was in that exact same region, right? So, do you want to get into that? Yeah, let's get into that. So, the next day, so Butler and Lee Moore, so they're making their way to the small outpost where they meet Dupuis, and this is for their hunting expedition, right? And this was the home of, of the Reverend Father Levenu. And, you know, despite the apprehension and skepticism on the part of Dupuis and the Reverend, the four of them go out along with, the, with their local native guides, and... Basically, they're searching for days, uh, fruitless searches, right? Until they came to a camp at the top of this ravine, like essentially looking over Partridge Creek, right? And it was here that they would witness something that we've described already that terrified them to their core. And how could it not? I mean, mm. I didn't. You, that's ballsy even to go looking, really, without like a full team. Well, yeah, exactly. They're kind of scouting. They're sh I think they were trying to uncover the tracks again too, right? Yeah. But and then they describe it as like they, they, they encounter it. They see this thing scrambling up the rocky face of the gorge, right? This massive, and this is the part I find really interesting because this, this was during the day, but they're describing it as like dark, like really dark, like almost black in color. I mean, I we know, I guess we're going to get into this in theories too, but it's like, you're think we're thinking like T-Rex or like we're thinking like dinosaur because that's how they're describing it. Mm -hmm. The the classic image of a dinosaur is like, you know, like a lizard, 
like not black, not feathered, which we kind of know now a lot of dinosaurs actually were. Yeah, or, or theorized to have had right. feathers in, in strategic or fur, areas. Exactly. Well, this thing didn't have fur, but it had bristles. It was almost like a boar. You know what I mean? Right. Like where it was like thick bristles and described as like shimmering with like the um like the frozen dew and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. of of the Arctic. So that to me is like, it, it's weird. It's almost like it's slightly an amalgamation. Like, could this be some sort of regional um, species adaptions type thing you know right. what I mean? um, that are conducive to living in this type of environment or the type of environment that existed in the Arctic long since past? Possibly. And we're essentially seeing an echo of that past is kind of what I might argue. <laughs> so that so that, that kind of falls in line a little bit with kind of the time slip idea. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other really significant like describe, descriptors of this creature was that it had this very peculiar horn, which we know um, there were uh, tyrannosaurs that had that feature um, and other kind of carnif- you know, carnivores. But at that, at, I found that to be odd. They described it almost like a rhinoceros, right? Kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Had then, that horned sort of snout. Totally. But the bristles and, you know, like covered in hoarfrost, which implies to me like that, yeah, the bristles are hair or fur. That sounds like an animal that lives somewhere cold, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Some sort of protection, right, for your skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this is, a, I just want to read this. This is a quote from Carl Schuker. Um it just sounds interesting here the way he he phrases it. When it was about 200 paces away from them, it paused for 10 minutes or so. That's a long time. Um, furnishing them with ample opportunity to observe it at close range in all its spine-chilling glory. End Ooh. quote. Meanwhile, this thing appears completely oblivious to the group of men that are terrified. You would imagine this type of predator would be capable of sensing, like even just using its nose, like, you know, like anything, right? And just, you would imagine too, if you're that out of your wits with fear, that you would probably be um, making some noise, perhaps like, you know what I mean? Or, well, you're, just, or yeah. you're just frozen on the spot. Which kind is of kind of like how they described it, like they exactly. were just frozen in fear. But that, that, that point you just brought up, like it didn't notice them. It should have. That to me is evidence um, of your time slip idea. Right. It's, it's, or, or things like that. It's just there. It's like you're looking through a, a a moving picture. Yes. It's like the hallways in Hogwarts. And I will come up with even more examples just to kind of uh, further illuminate that possibility. Very cool. But before we do that, let's just finish the story. So, okay. So we have that initial encounter of just the tracks. Then we get the follow up with the actual sighting of the beast by more than five men, right? Because it was the four guys plus the, I think there was at least two three, guys. I think it was three guys. Three guys. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah, you so you have an indigenous witness, several indigenous witnesses, as well as uh, the settlers. Extremely racistly described in the account. But remember, yeah. folks, it's 1903 at the time. Yeah. Well, the account was published in 1908. But right. Anyways, yeah. So then we're up to, essentially, when Dupuy receives this letter from the father, right? And this was dated to Christmas Day of 1907, and this was when the priest informed him that while he was in the company of about 10, quote, Indians or indigenous people, he um, he basically came across this monstrous entity once again. This time, it was racing at high speeds over the creek's frozen um, surface with what seemed to be a carcass of a caribou clamped between its jaws. <laughs> so the tracks they found were basically identical to those in 1903, clearly visible in deep mud and snow. And essentially uh, the father and his company followed the, 
track for about two miles before I was obliterated by falling snow. And that to me, again, he kind of says that it goes around the bend and kind of just disappears. Right. Which is weird, right? Did it just slip back into its own dimension or what happened there? Or did it essentially like somehow manage to scale a rock face that wouldn't have been as clearly um, like visible for trackers or something to that degree? Yeah. I don't know. It seems to be um, cliffs, gorges, rocky faces seem to be its home kind of. It's weird. It sounds like or, it's, yeah. Or as if it's always retreating back to there, which again points to its home territory. Or at least the entrance to where its home territory yeah, exists. exactly, exactly. Um, so I'm, yeah, so that's kind of the end of like our... <clears throat> the eyewitness account there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're what we're working with here is obviously trying to figure out, A, what, if, if they're not hallucinating, if they're not tripping, if they're not seeing something paranormal, or if they are seeing something paranormal, what could potentially be the explanation in terms of a creature? Like, what could this be? And obviously we know that, like, Canada in general is known for having, you know, treasure troves of, of remains, dinosaur remains, right? Yeah, Especially Alberta. Yep. You know, the Royal Tyrell Museum, Drumheller... Um, some of the earliest, earliest fossils in North America were found in Canada and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, a really early geologist and surveyor by the name of George Mercer Dawson found one of the earliest ones uh, on an expedition of the 49th parallel. And he didn't actually, he wasn't even looking for this, but he unexpectedly discovered one of the earliest bones in Canada. And this is deep into what is now the east block of the Grasslands National Park, And this was made back in 1874. There were earlier finds as well, but this is a really, really early one, obviously. This is like the Murdoch, the Murdoch days, right? Totally. Um, And uh, yeah, and then over the years, of course, there's countless other discoveries in the area and as well as further north too. So do you recall what species he discovered there or was it a was it a um, a relative of t-rex at all or i know that there have been relatives of t-rex found in the exact same area the bones he found in 74 i'm not sure okay Um, but there's a mix of of um carnivores and herbivores that have been found throughout this throughout alberta throughout saskatchewan up into the north right into the yukon as well which is where we're going today into the arctic territory encompassing alaska all the way over to the yukon that's right that's right Fun fact, though, sticking in Alberta for two seconds, the largest T-Rex ever discovered on record was dug up in Alberta. It was actually found uh, in 91, year I was born, by a high school teacher, um, along with some paleontologists from the Royal Saskatchewan Museum, who were prospecting for fossils in neighboring Alberta. And uh, yeah, turned out to be one of the most complete T-Rex skeletons ever found, about 65-ish percent intact. Wow. And was over 400 kilograms heavier than the next largest t-rex ever found they don't know if it's male or female but pretty crazy right crazy and obviously we're moving north like this is back in the day so Mm -hmm. the climates were totally different but not as different as you might think and as we're inching north here we'll we'll get into that in a sec it wasn't just all tropical and palm trees and humid and dinosaurs running around it was it wasn't like that all the time no no and then yeah there's been some discoveries in the yukon too so could this potentially be a link to the Partridge Creek monster? I don't know, kind of a leap. But in the 1960s, they did discover several herds, not just bones, but herds of bones of small duck-billed dinosaurs. Aww, so like platypus-like dinosaurs? Yeah, like they, they, they kind of like almost look like stand like a raptor would, but they're herbivores. They're oh, not carnivores. Okay. But they're still large enough. It's like, it doesn't have a horn on it, but... 
could that have possibly been something? It's like they were in the area. Does that sound like what they saw at Partridge Creek? Mm. I don't know. They didn't describe it as a duck bill. No. They described it as a horn. Yeah. And and with these massive teeth, like it was chomping bones. So that to me, again, obviously this is the carnivore we're dealing with. True. But I mean, but at least, at least in some sense, we're getting closer to this idea that like 60 million years ago, there were similar looking creatures in this area. And we know that for a fact, right? And then in 2009, there was another discovery made in the Yukon. And these were bones estimated to be around the same age as what the T-Rex would have been. And that's kind of like what we're hoping this might be, right? Again, more duck-billed dinosaurs, an ancient crocodile, as well as an ancient turtle, both of which would have been carnivores. What? Yeah. Turtle carnivore? Yeah. Or, well, no om- omnivores. Okay. Mm-hmm. So opportunist kind of thing. Opportunist. The crocodile would have been, obviously, Might snap carnivore. up a, a snake or a little flounder. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> anyway, um, then bones were discovered even further north. So trying, trying to get even further north into Alaska, so deep into the dark, snowy wilds of Alaska, more of these same duck-billed dinosaurs were found, as well as T-Rex. Now, you actually came across this as well. A relative of T-Rex was discovered yeah. to be living in the far north, and it was basically, it's called like a pygmy T-Rex. It's like really, really small version, definitely mm-hmm. big enough to still terrify human beings. Oh, yeah. It it still would have been at least, um, oh my gosh, at least five meters in length, I believe. I was looking at like scales, like they had a, um, it was a CBC article I was looking at and it basically had all of like the sort of um, uh, cousins, I guess, of the T-Rex all like kind of like in a line so you could see the differences. And like this one in particular was quite a bit smaller, but if you look at the scale, it's about a one meter. So I would say roughly it's about four to five meters in length was kind so of still what it massive. looked like. Yeah. Yeah. So still massive compared to a human being. That would definitely be terrifying to come across. Totally. And they, then here's the, here's the thing that's, that's really, I found interesting. I did not know this, that the Arctic was actually way like the Arctic was, was warmer obviously than it is now, but it, but it's not as warm as you thought it was. Right. right. <laughs> it was uh, heavily forested during this period, the Cretaceous period, like more so than it is now, but it still had these really drastic shifts in temperature between day and night, between seasons. They still had 24 hours of darkness in winter, food scarcity, snowfall. Think about that for a second. Yeah, so it's very, it's seasonal. Like it's not, it, like you've alluded to, yeah, it's not just like, yeah, palm trees and tropical and, and warm all the time. And right. That's often what I imagine when I think of what our world looked like back in the day. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and of course, like we're thinking like these are, these aren't, reptiles the way we look at reptiles today then right like cold-blooded can't survive in those types of conditions with food scarcity there was adaptations being made and last but not least along this same expedition when they discovered this miniature pygmy t-rex that could be the partridge creek monster they discovered a similar horned dinosaur dinosaur from a particular quarry um east of the massive colville river horned very much like the description of the partridge creek monster right i think i came across that one too and if i'm not mistaken okay there was oh i'm just trying to find scrolling down here trying to find the name of this dinosaur it it's um, you have it right here it's um 
Oh, the, the cer- Ceratosaurus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Ceratosaurus nasicornisus. Man, they make like that, that stuff always so hard mm-hmm. to pronounce, don't they? So it was a medium to large size flesh-eating bipedal dinosaur of the Jurassic period, related mm. to Tyrannosaurus rex and readily identified as the, having the large horn near the tip of its upper jaw. Right. So that really closely matches what they were talking about yeah. in, uh, in the account offered by George Duque and his, uh, his comrades there. So it's not quite, I mean, in terms of era, it's out of place. Yeah. In terms of location, it's actually not. Exactly. So the actual name of the one that you were talking about, the sort of pygmy uh, T-Rex, right. is called Nan- Nanuksaurus hoglundi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it made its home in the Arctic about 70 million years ago. There have been... Um, Oh my gosh, there's been a couple different discoveries of bones. There was actually unidentified fossil fragments of a skull and jaw that were found in northern Alaska almost eight years ago. This was reported in 2014. And this was in that same quarry area. I believe that's the same find that you just referenced there. Yeah. So they're connecting that back to this. And then they're saying um, that they definitely believe that there is a big difference between T-Rex and this smaller uh, Nanuxaurus, which basically is um the size right so it was about half the size and that there were other adaptions like we said like a possible fur that type of thing that would have been a, an adaption to life in the north and like you already mentioned yeah i'm just kind of reiterating here but this was a drastically different arctic than the one we do know today yeah as reported by cbc during the cretaceous period the area was a coastal plain much like now that um had uh, snow-capped mountains in the north and also in the south too, but it was warmer. Um, it had tall conifer trees, flowering plants in in the right seasons, right? So less of a tundra, less of like, you know, like a frozen wasteland type thing. Right. And the, the temperature was reported to be similar to Western Canada today. So very similar to what we're living in right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So see totally four seasons and can get real cold mm-hmm. oh and there was a couple of really cool things too here that were just referenced in the cbc article so this guy grant zazula he's a, a paleontologist for the yukon government he was talking about how northern alaska is literally literally littered with dinosaur fossils Indeed. everywhere you go and they're a little bit harder to uncover, I would imagine, because of the climate right now, and it's a lot more frozen, mm-hmm. and so you have to deal with that. And there was also a, a team of uh, paleontologists that found a plesiosaur oh, yeah. in the bedrock near the Peel River of the northern Yukon. So I loved, I just had Very to throw cool. that in there because it's like, this is sweet. It's almost, it's like, um, it's another reference to like Ogopogo, possibly. We talked about plesiosaurs and that. Mm-hmm. I think more so these days I'm leaning towards the eel theory, but you yeah. know, I just wanted to mention it too. Cressy could be uh, another reference for that too. Definitely. So you never know. That is that is really cool to find a little bit of plesiosaur remnants because plesiosaurs, yeah. the thing is, is like their, their remains are discovered on almost every continent, but they can be hard to find. And when you do find them, it's an indication that like it was a, a, vi- a viable environment right for them like they it was it was an environment for predators to eat exactly and yeah it's not as if this thing would have just washed up from thousands of miles away like dead or something you know what i mean no exactly yeah Yeah. so we're throwing out all sorts of crazy stuff oh yeah we love it it's it's gonna be a mishmash kind of episode today 
but that's the way we roll. Definitely. So we are going to be uh, jumping into some theories. We already kind of have been, but let's break down some weirdness because there's there's some crazy stuff to talk about here. But before we do, we have a little bit of a promo break for our friend Andrew Gable, member of the Straight Up Strange Network, and he is the host of Forgotten Darkness podcast. He digs through uh, the dusty files and archives of uh, dark history long since past, and it's a really cool show. So you guys should go check it out and uh, take a listen to this promo. A man in Brazil dies from severe burns, maybe from a UFO. In Washington, D.C., Jack the Slasher breaks into a house and barely steals anything, but dumps molasses all over a piano and cuts up curtains and sofas. I'm Andrew Gable, and on Forgotten Darkness, I'll look through old newspapers and other sources to find those lesser-known stories of yesteryear. I look mostly at true crime and unexplained phenomena. So if either of those topics sounds like your sort of thing, check us out. You can find the podcast at ForgottenDarkness.Podbean.com or on most podcast apps. All right. Well, let's get into... Some theories. We're going to go mundane to the extreme fantastical. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. (laughs) Like we always like to do. So first box we have to check off. Yeah. A hoax? Hoax. A hoax. Hmm. So we did, well, George himself mentioned how he was basically the laughingstock of of, uh, Dawson City, was it? Yeah. Golden City? Yeah, Dawson City. Yeah, yeah. For about a month. And he was nicknamed the Poe of the North. Right. Which kind of is hilarious. The way the tale reads is like it's well written and like it does lend itself. Like we've read a lot of Victorian era fiction, gothic ghost stories and tales like yeah. that. And uh, obviously Necronomicon, that type of H.P. Lovecraft fiction era. Yeah. And this could probably fit the bill for a short story in one of those books, I would say. It could. It definitely has that fantastical element, but I'm not going to outright dismiss it as him just his imagination yeah because you have to wonder right uh again like we talked about so many times in in cryptozoological cases of sightings and also with uh alien phenomena ufo reports that type of thing how people are so easily dismissed and and become these these uh uh, (laughs) like i don't know like don juan's kind of thing where they're just not respected and they basically lose their entire reputation so why why what do you have to gain from it essentially right totally and if you were Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's hard to put yourself in the mind, right? It's like, if it is a hoax, and you're writing that way, because it's a story, then wouldn't, it's kind of, it's kind of like the thinking three paces ahead type thing. It's like, wouldn't you write it as a more raw account, then? That's one angle, I'm thinking. The other is Mm -hmm. that this is kind of the way people just spoke back in the day, right? Very true, yeah. They're talking like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like Downton Abbey, right? And it's like, why, why are you pronouncing things that way? Just, just, Right. Like, not to mention, <laughs> it's not just him. Like he brings into the fold the father, right? Father Leveneau. He brings right. into the fold uh, his two buddies, the the banker and the gold prospector. So it's not just him. Well, here's and the thing. he didn't start the account too. It wasn't no. as if he had the initial sighting. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you never know. And Limor, or not Limor rather, but Butler, mm-hmm. a banker, successful banker from San Francisco. I mean, unless he's planning on retiring sometime soon, if that word gets out to any of his clients, I don't think anyone's going to keep uh, <laughs> trusting him with their cash. Yeah, that's very he's true. He's dinosaurs. Yeah, he's gone crazy, folks. I mean... Another thing that kind of is interesting that we should talk about is this whole idea of the tail and the, the sort of... Uh, 
the what was it described it was almost like a not a ditch but like basically it was creating a big furrow in the ground yeah and this was brought up by cryptid wiki the blog site that looks into like you know they just have basic stats on a lot of cryptid monsters and uh the Partridge Creek monster is among those. And they kind of said that an indication of hoax, this is a quote from them, is that dinosaurs did not drag their tail on the ground and held it horizontal to the ground. Though it could be possible that this species of dinosaur could go from a normal horizontal stance to a kangaroo-like stance, leaning back on its tail, it's not very believable. More realistic would be a mating dance with tail dragging. But my question too is like, we're dealing with really muddy terrain. We're dealing with like, you know, this is a heavy animal. It's presumably sinking into this swampy like ground and i kind of thought maybe even just the terrain like if there's this steep slope type thing if this would inevitably lead to a drag effect of the tail on the ground right as it's descending down a slope or whatever you know Mm -hmm. what do you think of that that's the only real explanation for that if they if they never would have normally been touching the ground or if it was just yeah like a high snow drift just uneven surface in general yeah i mean yeah Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because they did say it was a deep depression of about two feet into the ground, which means that this thing was massive. Uh, It weighed a lot. It was sinking down. So that to me kind of lends itself to that as well. Yeah. There was an interesting thing about T-Rex's tail, um, another CBC article that was talking about how uh, the tail was largely overlooked in many studies of T-Rex previously, but it would have massively contributed to its speed. Right. Interestingly, because like yeah. you get the account from Father Dupuis, or not Father Dupuis, sorry, Father Lavignot, which is basically saying that this thing was charging down the frozen river at a high rate of speed with its prey clamped in its mouth. So that right. isn't actually implausible. And actually, now there was like a, a co-authored study from the University of Alberta. And basically said that after doing some extensive tailbone examinations and computer modeling, the researchers concluded that the previous studies underestimated the amount of muscle mass in T-Rex's tail by up to 45%, and that it basically would have made it, the junk in the trunk would have made it the fastest predator on the ground. So it wouldn't, like, no prey would be able to escape it, essentially. Damn. So that's pretty cool. Very so, cool. I don't know. It, it, that to me is just a little side note here, but I, I think the tale and the evidence it left behind is quite intriguing, lends Definitely. itself to some ambiguities too. But again, I'm kind of accounting for those ambiguities with the muddy snow covered terrain. Absolutely. Jumping like a kangaroo, mm-hmm. the hind legs description sounds similar to like what these um tyrannosaurs would have been able to do jump in and run in and yeah all that stuff yeah pretty intense yeah i don't know though i mean hoax maybe probably not as probably not probably not yeah so then the next sort of mundane explanations we have to cover is uh existing known species of the arctic and i've listed a few here uh, such as the arctic wolf so (laughs) was it a wolf they saw (laughs) <laughs> a bristly wolf with uh, no recognizable features of a wolf that they would have been intimately familiar with if they had spent any time where they were. <laughs> you know Unless it was mean? a werewolf. Unless it was Walk a werewolf. On, walking on its hind legs and had a horn. The only thing that kind of is agreeable with this is the idea that the Arctic wolf is a carnivore and that it does exist in the Arctic, but it's usually a lot smaller. So it, the Arctic wolf is actually a subspecies of the gray wolf and is a lot smaller than that relative. So not... And exactly. And it would have been a carnivore, but it would have been preying on maybe musk oxen, some caribou. So there you go. You get crossover there. Arctic foxes, uh, ptarmigan, lemmings, seals, nesting birds, Arctic hares, usually smaller things and probably wouldn't have appeared any 
much like a dinosaur at all. No, more like a dog. And they're pack hunters too. So that would have been a dead giveaway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's more than one and it's clearly not another dinosaur. And I don't see it being able to fit an entire caribou, caribou. in its mouth and run away. So let's scratch that one off the list. The next most, the, the, the largest creature that's out there would be probably the polar bear. And again, pretty unlikely explanation, super massive creature. The jaw size doesn't fit because it's not, it wouldn't be carrying a caribou in it. No, it wouldn't be running on twos either. It'd be running on fours. No, maybe standing on twos and look real scary. True. But then it's like a snowy white animal covered in nice fur, not bristles. I mean, it could be covered in mud, like like dirty. A horned Um, polar bear. Not likely. That would be <laughs> freaky to see, though. Imagine a polar bear with a gigantic rhinoceros horn on the front. That would be insane. That would be <gasps> unconventional. Be like, it would be narwhal polar bear. Nar bear. Nar bear. Intense. <laughs> okay, well, that's another that's another cryptid for another day. Um, this is even more ridiculous. These next two are more more ridiculous than the wolf. Yeah. Well, all three really. We got Arctic fox here in the lineup. Way too small, in my opinion. Would have been preying on lemmings, hares, reptiles, amphibians. Maybe some vulnerable seal pups. But other than that, it's not going after caribou. It would have had to have been like Arctic foxes, like combining forces together, like the way Transformers did to like create the gigantic (laughs) robot. Like they all just pile on top of each other in some kind of like giant fox pile. Foxes unite. Into a massive monster with like one fox on the nose (laughs) as a horn. Well, how about this? How about a bunch of owls all together? Even better. <laughs> oh, you just had to say this just as a, a little jab to Joe Nickel over there. Man. Him and his owls, hey? I wonder if that guy will ever actually like hear our show and the number of times that we rip on him. Like, how many episodes did we mention him? <laughs> oh, probably every single cryptozoological yeah. one. It's probably an owl. <laughs> probably. It's gotta be. Gotta be. Well, what about walrus? Hmm. This one, <laughs> this one, the skin type matches, right? It would be like kind of, well, not the blubbery, like, appearance but perhaps having some bristly features especially around the mouth and face Mm -hmm. area but Mm -hmm. again this is a marine dwelling animal um could not scramble up rocks and dash across frozen rivers with a dead caribou clamped in its jaws definitely not yeah definitely not so that to me again not so plausible no and we're basically checking off all the are these arctic animals that are of relative size i went through like, the whole list i was like okay every arctic predator let's get you on the bill totally and, may, and the tough part is is obviously we're dealing with land, a land sighting yeah like if this is a marine cryptid then there's so many other possible explanations right it's like you saw a different type of whale or there's way more unknowns beneath the surface that we can speculate on yeah. than we can here with walrus bears mm-hmm. wolves exactly it's 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 interesting there are some other creatures up there and honestly this one deserves an episode in and of itself and it's going to get one uh fingers crossed that we are going to eventually collaborate with our boys over at kryptonaut podcast to cover the yukon beaver eater because that is another monster that has existed in the north for some time the indigenous populations have uh spoke of it known about it it's called Seitochen, and everyone mm-hmm. else calls it the beaver eater Here's the thing. It doesn't match the description of the Partridge Creek monster. It only matches the ferocity and size. Okay. So, um... No horns involved. No, it's basically been identified as a giant ground sloth that feeds primarily on full-grown beavers. Okay. (laughs) Hence the name. But, and, and, and there were giant ground sloths in this 
era in this uh, area, but mm-hmm. it would have been more like Pleistocene, right? So this right. is like after these other dinosaurs and creatures we've been talking about already. Mm-hmm. But predator, known amongst indigenous peoples in that area, massive, but not matching the description of the Partridge Creek monster. No. Very strange, very weird, very dangerous to be sure, yeah. but not matching the Partridge Creek the monster. physical description. Exactly. Yeah. And much less, um, those are, beavers are a lot smaller than a caribou. They are indeed. <laughs> I mean, yes, they are. Very yeah. much so. So we're back kind of around to the idea of a real living dinosaur. Yeah. So like we've already mentioned, right? This uh, Ceratosaurus was probably... It's probably the best candidate, I'd say, because it is the sort of medium to large size carnivorous dinosaur that was related to Tyrannosaurus rex and does have this large horn near the tip of its jaw. So it had, yeah, like it was characterized by deep jaws supported proportionally by very long blade-like teeth and a prominent ridge-like horn in the midline of the snout. There you go. And it also had a pair of horns over the eyes too, which weren't mentioned in the account, but maybe the one big horn really got in the way and they're just focusing on that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so this one, um, again, it had very small forelimbs that are typical of like, you know, like what we think of as T-Rex, but they were very functional. Each hand had four fingers. Um, it had a, a tail. Um, the tail was deep from top to bottom is the description here. So meaning deep as in large, I would imagine. Um, yeah, and there was also another description offered by the Natural History Museum of Utah that said basically this large carnivorous dinosaur had a prominent nasal horn with two other horny bumps over both eyes, like I previously mentioned. The name Ceratosaurus actually means horned lizard. And grew to lengths of about 25 feet or 6 to 8 meters, which roughly matches perhaps what they saw. Yeah, how about that? So unlike most carnivorous dinosaurs, it actually had a row of bony armor called osteoderms, which were along its back. And the first specimen was actually discovered in the 19, sorry, 1880s. This was in Colorado. And it was dug up in full articulation, meaning that it was in situ, essentially an entire skeleton. Um, the majority of the bones were actually still connected to one another as well. So it gave a really complete picture of what the species would have looked like in real life. But interestingly enough, um, the earliest illustrations of this dinosaur in particular exaggerated its length and in many cases gave an extra six vertebrae. So it wasn't very, I know. So they're almost trying to make it look more badass. Yeah. Yeah. But again, going back to the two horns or ridge-like appendages on the top of the eyes, that wasn't really accounted for in the account. But, you know, maybe it was overlooked by the fact that the thing had a massive jaw and a massive horn and the jaws were clamping onto some poor animal kind of thing. So you're just focused on that. Blood oozing out the sides. Exactly. Yeah, a little distracting Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So I don't know. There is um, another uh, dinosaur as well, which I didn't look into too, too much because it didn't really match the description, but it is a cousin of the Ceratosaurus here. It's called Allosaurus. However, does not have any horns at all. So kind of, again, is kind of straying away from the description. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we do, once again, have precedent for carnivorous horned dinosaurs in this area. Just not at this time. Just not at this time. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. I have a real tinfoil hat one to throw out to you. Let's hear it. Um, and mm-hmm. that is the uh, possibility of hollow earth reptilians uh, crawling through the caverns in the earth to surprise 
George Dubois mm. and his team. This <laughs> no. is reminding me of a film Friday we've got coming up for you guys. Oh boy. I don't even know if I should say the name or should I just, just keep my mouth shut? No, no, just uh, Well, we've been obsessed with the movie Kong Skull Island for the last two and a half weeks, and we're gonna do it as a film Friday because oh, it yeah. really deserves it. It's a super awesome monster movie. I can't believe we didn't watch it when it came out. Oh, I'm so sad. They need to like replay it in theaters so I know. we can go watch we it. We just need to buy a bigger TV. <laughs> or that, yeah. <laughs> but I, I but yeah, totally this idea popped up to me from this movie, and I am not a proponent of the hollow earth theory because it's batshit crazy it is Um, it is but when you when you dial it back a little bit Mm -hmm. there's aspects to it that could be argued for with some more legitimacy than the idea of it being you know there's another earth within the earth with like a miniature sun and things right like where that's where these creatures are coming from that's like not what i'm saying but within that theory pun intended i suppose within the theory um within the hollow earth theory there's a story about this one and we're going to do an episode on this just on the hollow earth too you guys so i'm like i'm not going to go into too much detail here mm-hmm. but there is an account from a pilot uh post world war ii or during world war ii recon it was admiral bird i think his name was story of him flying over the north pole finding a massive cavern flying into it and seeing beings and creatures and things like that the only thing that that reminded me of with this story is obviously North Pole, arc, cold cold regions and stuff like that. And if there was a space where potentially other beings were coming from, hmm. right? So okay. there's a precedent in the tales for the North being an entrance and exit point for potential cavernous holes into either the entire hollow earth, if you want to believe that, all the way through to the tinfoil hat craziness, <laughs> or potentially just like caverns that we don't know of. I mean... Okay, so smaller right? spaces that are unaccounted for by right. modern science. Um, but because that's interesting, right? Because in the formation and tectonic theory and all this kind of thing, you have all these layers, right, of the earth and and you presumably would have, like, even in volcanic eruptions and things like that, you get lava tubes, you get other sorts of formations that create these spaces underground that are naturally occurring. It's not as if we're, like, you know, go, yeah. going full up paranormal here. But at the same time, what what sort of life could thrive in those little spaces, hey? Exactly. Or oh, high, man, I have so many too. things I want to say, but I'm not going to give it away because I'm going to save it for that next episode but there's precedence for complex life very 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 deep within the earth very deep uh, mariana's trench is another great example of, of course that too. of course um, deep in the yeah in the, in the oceans i like that a lot i mean it's it's crackpot like it. it's it crackpot. is oh it is but it's it's fascinating but right? i just you know north pole arctic circle t-rex is found in the arctic massive caverns potentially being there it just sounded too good to not bring up <laughs> you know what I'm, you know what i'm saying and it potentially ties in a little bit to your coming back around to your time slip idea here okay well let's get into that then because i like that you're you're basically teeing up another episode there pretty much yeah. <laughs> a little teaser there <laughs> but okay let's get into the time slip phenomena here because this has been reported for centuries uh, all over the world people reporting unexplainable experiences anachronisms with no explanation or belonging So a famous example took place in 1974 in England, and this was reported by Nick Redfern's article, Moving from One Time to Another, um, on the Mysterious Universe website here. So this is a quote here. It says, uh, the event occurred at some point in the winter of 1974. It was late at night, and then 36-year-old John Davy Davis, a Lakefield, Staffordshire-based house painter at the time, was driving near Hopton Heath. When he began to feel unwell, an ominous tightness developed in his chest. He felt lightheaded and, as he succinctly put it, 
my left ear hurt and felt hot. He Weird. Qu- yeah. So it continues on here. He says, it quickly pulling over to the side of the road, Davis was amazed to see in the night sky, sorry, amazed to see the night sky suddenly transform into daylight while the road in front of him no longer existed. Instead, it had been replaced by a mass of fields, heathland, and tangled trees. And in front of him, countless soldiers adorned in what was clearly Civil War era clothing, wage, waging harsh war upon one another. Notably, Davis said that although at one point he was nearly bloody surrounded by the soldiers, it was almost as if they could neither see him nor his vehicle. Right. This afforded Davis a great degree of relief as he was practically frozen on the spot and couldn't have run even if he wanted to. As it transpired, Davis didn't need to run anywhere. Just a few seconds later, the bizarre scene suddenly vanished and Davis found himself sat at the edge of the road with his car squashed against a large line of hedge and it completely, sorry, with a complete and utter normality returned. Okay, so that's kind of interesting here. And I kind of have questions, right? Because he's alone in this case. And uh, is he hallucinating? Is he having a seizure, a stroke, Uh, the indication of burning hot sensation on the side of his head? Is it a tumor involved? Like, you know, like there's there's things here. Um, But what do you think of that? Well, I mean, obviously it reminds me of a lot of other things you've mentioned in the past, like the Roman soldiers running through um, things like that. But um, I think honestly, I... I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I mean, it seems it reminds me of ghosts, but it's like it's not a sighting of a ghost necessarily because they can't see him. Yes, it's almost as if he slipped back into their era. It reminds me. It reminds me of the episode of Astonishing Legends where they covered the story of a friend with the um, the Indian uh, and then the the, sol- the Civil War soldier on their property that was keenly aware of like the mom or whatever it was, like it or something what like was that. It? it was like. Hmm? It, it was, oh, I can't remember exactly how it was, but it was like the apparition was aware of the people there, whereas this is the opposite. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, so they're just reenacting something that happened mm-hmm. centuries ago in, mm-hmm. in that area. And then it's almost as if this guy Davis just happened to slip through the veil yeah. into that scene, that moment, just temporarily. So again, right, so the idea that the soldiers were entirely unaware of Davis parallels the accounts provided by Dupuy with his initial encounter with this Partridge Creek monster. Yeah. It appears that the beast, in my, in, from my perspective, should have been aware, as it is a predator, and these humans witnessing it would have been just completely just blown away with, with fear, right? Totally. So you, you would think that they would have been startled enough to give themselves away unless, like we said before, they're literally frozen to the spot and they just like can't even breathe. But it was a 10-minute sighting as it recounted by Carl Shuker, so I don't really know. And exactly this. This is the one point here, as reported in the initial account. It says here, Dupuy related how the beast turned its immense neck but didn't seem to see us. So it's looking right in their direction and just nothing. So, because it's existing in a different time or yes. a different place. Another thing that kind of... Oh, sorry. you were. You oh, I was just going to say, the only thing about that that is like kind of refutes all of that is the the physical sounds and uh, of the rocks falling. Like this is like, right? They, they watched it and the scrambling tracks. and obviously the physical tracks, mm-hmm. but the, the scrambling up the, up, the, up the ravine and boulders being pushed down, that is not the same as Civil War soldiers or whatever, right? Mm. Being, being seen... And not having any impact on their environment that they're in. That's actually a good point. Yeah, that's true. Uh, another thing I want to add to that is like they, just to add to my idea that maybe they slipped through the veil into its sort of, 
it's hard to say that though because I feel like the terrain the climate would have looked a lot different like the landscape would have looked different to them but you know it was dusk so it was turning dark so you never know well, it's like is the monster seeing its world and they're seeing the world yeah, they're in exactly and he's just a fragment that's kind of it's almost like he's yeah. superimposed over top of yeah, their yeah. landscape. Superimposed. That's and the fact one. that they couldn't identify what it was chewing on. What if it had some ancient prey that we don't have anymore as a species around? Even though they did describe caribou in the other account. Appeared to be a caribou, but there would have been caribou-like mm-hmm. mammals True. around. Actually, this reminds me of that Noah movie we watched with, uh, what's the name, Russell Crowe? Mm. When there was those strange, like animals that were like kind of like deer but not they had like the glistening right. metal skin or something yeah, like that yeah but then when you get to the actual building of the ark it's all the animals we know today <laughs> that bothered me yeah that, that movie, movie sucked that movie was stupid but anyway <laughs> <laughs> so okay key to note is that this this account that i just said um with what's his name davis he was alone but there's been accounts where there's more than one individual present for the experience, which kind of leaves medical explanations limited, like stroke, seizure, dilution, hallucination, that type of thing. But again, another idea is that a lot of the times these people that experience this phenomenon generally report an odd, uneasy sensation descending on them right before the instance occurs. So that, I don't know if that has to do with an actual paranormal thing, if it's if it again is something to do with the human condition, like some sort of pre-condition uh, that would kind of onset an experience like this but you alluded to another famous one here so the infamous roman ghost soldiers of new york in right. northern england this story goes that a caretaker of this historic treasures ha- treasurer's house of york was making repairs to the wall when an apparition of dozens of ghostly soldiers came marching right through the wall right beside where he was working (laughs) and their ghostly bodies appeared to be cut off at the knee so again this was nothing less than a ghostly manifestation if you want to believe it of roman soldiers traveling the old road beneath the house so since paved over several layers built on top of it so what he was seeing was essentially their apparitions reenacting it was an echo right another echo and of course they were cut off at the knee because the rest of their bodies were underground (laughs) right or their, their apparitions were underground i should say but I thought that was another really, really interesting. interesting. There was one here, too, that I didn't actually write into the notes, but it was a, um, oh, it was two girls, and they were walking together through a garden, and I believe it was either in France or in England somewhere. And again, they actually had, oh, no, no, it was England, or no, no, France, because Marie Antoinette was Queen of France, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so this was in France, um, the Castle of Marseille or Versailles or something like that. And they were, I wish I had the notes in front of me, but essentially these two girls were walking and they had the same sensation descend upon them. And then they started to see people walk past them that were not wearing the um, the Vogue dress, right? So they were, I think this was in the mid 20th century. These people were dressed like it was the 1600s or 1500s, that type of thing, like hundreds of years ago. And they said that they thought that they saw Marie Antoinette or someone that looked like her. Very cool. So again, yeah, it was headless. <laughs> no, not headless. But again, like, yeah, just same era of her. And, 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 and it was a very weird scene. It was almost like everyone was like, depressed it was like a very oppressive atmosphere that they were walking through and then it disappeared right in front of their eyes and they were just back in everyday right normality yeah man so what do you think of that do you think that the partridge creek monster could be that because we don't have any other accounts right like this was kind of a one and done like three ish encounters right spread over a period of five years because the initial one happened 
the two initial ones happened in uh, 1903. That's right. And then Father Duque said that he related it one more time in the company of 10 other individuals. So it wasn't just him alone. Right. So I kind of like that theory. I think I that there's too. a lot at play there, even though it is a lot of like um, theoretics and pseudoscience and whatever else you want to call it. Of course, but... it's hard to prove, but it's um, it's kind of one of the only things that makes sense if you're to believe these guys' story, which I do, mm. because I mean, it's it's a classic thing, right? It's like, why would you make it up? Why yeah. would you? Why would you ruin your reputation? Why would you come back into town and be the laughingstock? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like and order, like you need fifty soldiers to go out, yeah, fifty men like to go very seriously. form a party and go hunt this thing down, like, right? That's serious, and this isn't yeah. exactly you know you're not going to be whipping up a screenplay and selling the movie rights. Oh, true. Um, not is... to mention expending unnecessary resources in those kinds of harsh conditions of living. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I could maybe think to be, uh, you know. Like a rationale for any of this would be like, you know, Lee Moore was a gold prospector. Maybe he worked some sort of a deal with his friends to concoct a story to maybe try to scare people away from a potential claim. <gasps> classic um, Scooby-Doo plot. Classic Scooby-Doo plot. There's mm. a, you, you could probably come up with a better story though to try to scare to lure people. people away. Yeah. Because yeah. then you will get people that are equally curious perhaps, right? And exactly. And go monster hunting. Right. Hmm. I guess maybe the thought would be like, if I said there was a herd of polar bears and that was dangerous, then they would just send hunting parties. Like if, but it's a True. dinosaur, then maybe. But why would they order a hunting party to go out for it in the first place? <sighs> maybe they knew they'd be rejected. True. You know, they're just but, playing but, their but hand. to make it seem as if they're serious enough. Yeah, I don't know, yeah. but that's 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 just speculation on top of speculation on top of speculation. And why would the father, the unless he was corrupted and he was part of the um, the collusion, if you want to call it that? Yeah. Like, why would he lend support? Totally. And why would he send a random letter to George Dupuy years and years later, recounting another tale, that's not saying anything true. else in the letter about any other means or anything like that, but very just true. saying like, "Oh, you ought to come visit me one more time, my old friend," kind of thing. Unless he's referring to some sort of payment or owens or something like that. Hmm. It's real tough without knowing the character of each of these individuals, like on a deeper scale to really really, tell. We need to get on Ancestry.com and see like, you know, if we could track some of these people down more so. Some of their relatives, like ancestors? Yeah. Or even if we could find them on Ancestry, right? Right. Just to get more details on them. Yeah. Yeah. We should should probably register (laughs) register one of those. (laughs) Or if anyone has Ancestry already and they want to look it up for us, that'd be so cool. That would be really sweet. Yeah. Bring you into the fold. You could be a honorary researcher for ITP. Definitely. Yeah. We're totally open to that. Anybody who wants to shoot us an email and let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, one more thought I have on the whole time slip thing, mm-hmm. because, you know, you give the example of the, the Roman soldiers in, in York, Northern England, and then the, the earlier story with uh, Davy. And, you know, to me, it's like, it's just so weird trying to like wrap my head around the different ways that like energies are expressed. You know what I mean? So it's like, on the one hand, like going back to an episode like uh, Patreon Lep Castle and like something like the... Mm. Um, the uh what was that thing called the uh, oh that entity gosh. that's in there oh I'm, it's escaping oh, my memory and, right anyway now. but it's like it's it's a it's a conscious thing that appears similarly to kind of these time slip phenomena but it's like it's an entity that's aware it you know what i mean like when that's mm-hmm. getting into realms of like demonic possession or whatever it's like things that are impacting the physical world but they themselves are not physical then there's time slip i'm air quoting here mm-hmm. where it's like again apparitions energies like entities that were there but they're not interacting with the the present yeah so it's active yeah exactly yeah so it isn't in and of itself like an ent at an at a one-off entity so that right you know what you know what i'm saying so it's like the partridge creek monster to me seems more like a less of like the roman soldiers where they're just passing through and can't see them other than the fact that 
Dupuy described that it looked right at them and didn't see them. That's yeah. that's the only thing that matches up with and, that. And never in one of these encounters ever chased them, ever went after them. Even Father Dupuy, or sorry, Father Leveneau's account afterwards, right? Like it was yeah. just running away. It's just doing its, it's thing. It's bizarre. It's hunting. It's it's just living in its Man. its own realm. Like I, I guess what I'm trying to say ultimately is this thing is halfway in between the time slip phenomena and an actual like interdimensional physical entity. Rocks are falling, moose are being killed, there's blood on the snow, there's tracks in the snow and mud. Yes. Bizarre. So half physical, half metaphysical. (laughs) That's what's making this one really hard to kind of like pick a side. Yeah. You know Hmm. what I'm saying? But then you do get um, sort of the idea that other spectral entities and things like that, like ghosts and whatever, have been known to leave other sorts of physical evidence, like the goo. Very true. That goo. Maybe we should look into that a little bit more. I'm not sure if that's been disproven or not, but... Like, you know, like, fan, um, what's it, plasma, that type of thing? Right. I was... Fantastic <laughs> ghost, plasma. Ghostbusters, like, a, cl- a class four phantasmal specter, like, whatever the... <laughs> good old Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. We should anyway, do an episode on Dan. We should. <laughs> That'd be fun. We should. Yeah. Anyway, I think that kind of wraps it up. I mean, do you have any final theory or thought? Well, I feel like I am sort of leaning towards this, the veil, like I've mentioned before, and like mm-hmm. this idea of going in and out of something and, and, and not... And just kind of exploding our preconception of a linear sort of time yeah, framework absolutely. that we exist in. So your idea is saying that this this creature was was just doing its thing in its time. Basically. And yeah. happened to be visible through some sort of a veil yeah. in that exact moment, yeah. in that exact location. I think I, to, I'm kind of leaning towards that. Yeah. You have to wonder if weird geomagnetics and things like that come into play and like affecting time and then they can see things that are from 60 million years ago or that or, are actually happening now or whatever. Or maybe it was just a trick of the light and a sheet hanging from the roof. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. scooby doo doo Yeah. Well, what about you? Any final thoughts? No, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm riding with you on that one. I, uh, there's no real way to explain this other than, other than, uh, uh, these final thoughts we've we've mm-hmm. pitched here, honestly. It's a fascinating story. I it's love bizarre. this one. Me it's too. so great. The well, monster of Partridge Creek, man. Let us know what you guys think. Exactly. We want to know your thoughts, your theories, any sort of um, anything you can add to the conversation is awesome as always. Um, so thank you to all of you for listening. And also thank you to our new producer, Jordan Yu. Yes. We appreciate you to the ends of the earth and back. Um, and we just want to remind all y'all that we actually have uh, a lot of offerings on our Patreon community, mm-hmm. including our 100% free episode that we just released this last week. Uh, it was a conversation with Vanished AE's um, project headed by Jennifer Taylor and Chris Williamson. That's so right. we're talking about all the updates, all the evidence, all the conflicting theories of, of, of current investigations, That's things right. of that yeah. regard. So really fascinating. And it's always, it's just getting juicier and juicier. So make sure you guys go check it out. It's just patreon.com forward slash into the portal. You got it. Yeah. And yeah, thank you to all of our listeners, all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you guys uh, sitting down with us today to listen to this one. Yeah. And uh, you, on- you know where to find us as always, uh, yeah. into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. We're always active on our social, so you can get us on uh, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, come follow us stuff. on Instagram, guys. Yeah. We need more Instagram followers at into the portal podcast. And also don't forget to follow the Straight Up Strange Network at Ooh, Strange Pods yeah. um, and Strange Podcasts on Twitter. So go check out those accounts because there's always some really cool... Uh, We've got articles coming out on there and mm-hmm. just like cool, prom- cool stuff going on. So go follow those accounts. Yeah. Lots of fun stuff to look forward to. Yep. So thanks again for joining us. And until next time on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre.
you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.